So, uh, welcome back. Um, tonight, my plan is to do a little more teaching on some of the key elements to um, the educational process. If you if you didn't, uh, because this is only a three-week course, sorry, i got to fix this thing. Because it's only a three-week course, if you didn't listen to the first lecture, you probably should go online and do it. It's on there, right, Jay? Yeah. Okay, so um, sounds like Heather was able to listen to it. Okay. Okay, good. So, um, yeah, so that, that'll just help you to catch up to where we're at. And tonight we're going to look at some general principles for teaching truth concepts. A little talk on how to understand different ways that people learn and specifically how they move from hearing something for the first time to storing it in their soul and mind. Then... Um, we're going to look at the handouts that you have tonight, and we're going, going to uh, help you to start to organize material in preparation for a lesson plan. And then next week, the focus will be on the actual writing of the lesson itself. But before we get to the lesson, I'm going to propose there's at least two steps that have to come before. Okay? So, let's just pray and then we'll get started. So, Father God, we come tonight, and we are interested in being better communicators, and we're interested in uh, holding the attention of our students, and we're interested in understanding our students and the way they think and learn. But we, we, we're thinking about all these things, Lord, because at the end of the day, as Christians, we want people to come to grips with truth, and we want their lives to be transformed by it. And we pray that that aim and that goal would motivate us all to be better communicators of truth, to uh, always be learning ourselves so that we might be better teachers. And we pray that you would expand our audience, that you would give us many more people than we're currently teaching to teach so that lives might be transformed for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, let's look at some general principles for, for teaching truth concepts. Now, I want you to uh, note that um, for each of these, you can also reverse the order to peak an appetite and then also move back and forth between them during the lesson plan. So this is not like number one has to be in this order, then number two, then number three, and there's no opportunity for any flexibility. There's some flexibility here. So for example... Uh, the first principle is to move from the known to the unknown. So we're on the final page, I think, of last week's handout. Do you have that? Page four, maybe? I think page three. Maybe. Okay, yeah, the bottom of page three. Move from known to unknown. So... Um, An example of this might be that you are teaching someone on our relationship with God as Father. And your intention is to try to help your audience think about the fact that we are sons and daughters of God who reveals himself to us as a Father. And this is an... Uh, uh, something that you, you've you declared, but now you want to sort of drive it home, you want to unpack it, you want to sort of really focus in on it, you want to approach it from several different angles and help people to understand that. So in order for people to understand this concept, which by definition is what? Kind of abstract, metaphysical, spiritual? Instead of taking them right there and saying, okay, this is what it means for God to be your father, what you might want to consider doing is you move from something that they do know about. And what would be something they do know about that would help them maybe to understand this higher spiritual truth? What would it be? Earthly father. So you'd start to talk about an earthly father, the role of an earthly father. Of course, if you were discerning, you'd also recognize that not everybody had a great father, and you'd kind of uh, head off at the pass any faulty thinking they might have about fatherhood. But the point is you start with something they know, and then you move them to the unknown. 
Now, if you're a, a student and you're not uh, necessarily aware of your teacher's teaching methods, you might just think they're using an illustration. But really, you're doing something more than using an illustration. You're trying to move them from the known to the unknown. And so as you're thinking about what you're going to teach, when it comes to truth concepts, different ideas about God or self or sin or salvation or the church or Satan or whatever the truth concept is you're trying to unpack, recognize that some of the things you've heard time and time and time again that you know that are old hat for you may be a little bit abstract for your audience. And this is especially true the younger you, the younger the group is you're teaching, but it's also true when you're teaching people who are new believers without a church background. And by the way, just keep in mind when you're teaching young, young or new believers, there's two different kinds of young believer. There's the young believer that has a Christian background, and there's the young believer that has none. Those are two different kinds of people. So if you're teaching someone that grew up in the church, maybe they grew up in a pastor's home or their parents were life group leaders or Sunday school teachers, but they toss it all away and went on their merry way, but then they came to Christ, that's a very different kind of person than someone who never grew up in the church. One has a body of knowledge behind them, the other has none. They're both babes in Christ, but they're coming at it from a different perspective. So as you are teaching, whether you're teaching children or youth or adults, you're trying to help people move from what they know to that which is unknown, so that might become known to them. The second principle you want to keep in mind when you're teaching truth concepts is to move from the simple to the complex. Now, maybe just by way of getting you to participate here, what are some complex truths? What are some of the, the complex truth concepts that we are exposed to in the Word of God? What are some of the big ones, the common ones? Pardon me? Okay, the Trinity. What else? The wrath of God. Yep. Okay. Suffering, these are complex truths, foreknowledge, <laughs> predestination, you know, these are all like whew, kind of weighty concepts. Well, you as a teacher have a bit of a responsibility, not just to throw out verses, say this is what the Bible says and then move on, but you have a responsibility, I think, to sort of think through as best as you can what these concepts mean, how they apply, sort of dissect them in your mind, break them down into bite-sized pieces, and then as best as you can, without dumbing people down, try to move people into the complex by starting with the simple. So you're moving them from the simple into the complex. So let's, let's say you're um, wrestling with the doctrine of God's fairness. So the Bible talks about the fairness of God. But the fairness of God is kind of complex because he sends people to hell. Not everybody hears the gospel. Um, he wipes out Canaanite villagers without them ever being exposed to the truth of God's word. And you're like, okay, that doesn't sound a lot like fairness. So this becomes a complex theological issue. So then what you have to do is maybe... Uh, instead of going right there and trying to explain all that, maybe ha spend some time helping people to think through what fairness actually is in human relationships. And what would be some, some things you could probably draw upon from your observations of human relationships that may help people to modify their overly simplistic view of God's fairness? What might be some? Simple, simpler concepts will help you to understand this more complex concept. Okay, so how would you, what aspect of that are you thinking about?
Okay. Okay, excellent. So in their limited experience or immaturity or anger, they might may not understand that the punishment you are doling out is actually motivated by love. Okay, that, that's kind of a concept that you might be able to understand that you could maybe import into your conversation about God. Yep. Okay, yeah. So it's dependent on the situation and the need. Yeah. What else? How about this one? Um, those of you that have multiple children, have you ever had one of your children say, that's not fair? No? Just my kids have said that? Okay. So, so if you have, what you might want to do is say, well, um, so for us, there's five, right? So one kid says, that's not fair. Okay, but how many children are in the world? Okay, I don't know. Pick a number, right? Billion. Does God call me, dad, as a human being to love all people? Yeah. And how come I really only spend all my time giving stuff to you five? <laughs> what about the millions and millions and millions and millions others that never experience a tangible expression of my love, even though I'm supposed to love all people. So right there, you have a limited pool of people who are recipients of my love. And within that pool, they might bicker among themselves about the fairness of my actions without consideration for the fact of all these other kids out there that aren't receiving really any, quote-unquote, you could call fairness from me because they're not receiving my gifts or my love, right? And in some way, that concept can be poured into this idea that God has an elect group of people while he loves all people. There are those that are part of his family that have recognized his role as father and he dispenses far greater love and grace and mercy to them, sometimes to the exclusion of all others. So just these simple kind of concepts, you move from the simple to the complex. Instead of just trying to unpack the complex, spend some time thinking about simpler concepts and then when you, when you unpack these for your listener, the lights are more apt to go on. Now, let's move to the third principle. And I don't even remember where I got these from, so don't think I made all these up. But the third principle is to move from the concrete to the abstract. Now, this is somewhat similar to simple to complex, but it's maybe a, even a little more philosophical. So a couple of... Um, uh, illustrations I wrote down here. I think uh, Dave mentioned the Trinity. So the problem with the Trinity is it's abstract, and it's abstract in the sense that there, in fact, is no example in the created order that is like the Trinity. People have tried to draw from analogies of human experience to try to explain the Trinity. What are some of the ones you may have heard? Okay, so the egg, so shell, yolk, egg white? Okay, yep. Okay, what else? Okay. Mm -hmm. Same with the orange, right, seed, flesh. Uh, what would you call it, peel? Three-leaf clover, maybe you've heard that one. Okay, now, what is the problem with all of those? Not only insufficient, but... Okay, yeah, that's part part of it, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. So all of those are... That, that's, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Who, who told you that, Joe? Did you... Did you Oh, Jen, okay. Because <laughs> usually in teaching, by the way, one teaching tip is when a student says something, you then try to like rearrange it or say it back in different words, but I couldn't come up with anything better. That was just excellent, Joe. Like, way to go. So the, the idea of drawing like from objects to try to describe a being, something breaks down in between. But one, one aspect that does carry weight, because it seems that God actually uses this to help us to understand himself, is the concept of community. 
So as you talk about the human need for community or how we relate to each other or the fact that it's only in community that we can perform all the one another's, love one another, forgive one another, rebuke one another, if there's no one else around, you, you can't obey any of those commandments. They're just moot and void. So it's in community that many of the virtues that we hold dear are able to be put into practice. Now, this is the way I like to think about this. God is, in fact, the first community because in his very being, he is three persons eternally communing in one, not three parts. He's three persons eternally communing in one. And it's the very fact that he was community, if you could use that word, for all of eternity is what enables God, as he enters into relationship with created beings like us, to love, to forgive, to speak with, to hear from. Now, if God wasn't an eternal community, how could a being who existed forever without any community within his essence, meaning without any love, without any communication, without any back and forth, suddenly adapt his very essence to relationships with people? which, by the way, has huge implications for our apologetic and our view of God. And I've often shared this with Muslims who don't like the doctrine of the Trinity. If you start to sort of unpack it for them, they have a huge problem on their hand because they have to answer, not a theological, but a philosophical question. How can a God who existed forever and was in his essence not a community suddenly enter into community? It's a philosophical question. It's very difficult to answer. But understanding the nature of community helps people to understand more of the nature of the, tr the Trinitarian God that we worship. Now, another example of this would be the fear of God. The fear of God is a bit of an abstract concept. The fear of God. Now, we, we know, as students of the Bible, that it, it's, the, it's, it's more along the lines of reverence, which at times might involve fear if you're being stupid. But other times, it's like just a profound awe. But to understand the fear of God, which is a bit of an abstract concept, you might need to draw or help people to have a conversation first about, well, what does it mean to fear someone in a position of authority? What does it mean when you're driving down the street? You all do this. You're driving down the street. You're not paying attention to your odometer. But as soon as you see a police officer on the side of the road, what do you all do? You check your odometer. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm in, within the speed limit or I'm way over. You just automatically do that because ingrained in you is a reverence for that black and white vehicle sitting at the side of the road. It's a, it, there's a sense of fear to it, but there's also a sense of reverence. And taking people from less abstract, concrete examples or concepts into the unknown is a great way to teach. Now, when I said at the beginning you can flip them around, you can flip them around. You can start talking about an abstract concept to the point people are like, I can't get this, and say, well, let me give you an illustration now of it. Or you can start with the illustration and then take them to the abstract. So, same with the other points. You can move from simple to complex or complex to simple or back and forth and back and forth as you prepare your lesson to help people to understand the concept that you want to drive home. The fourth concept is to move from general to specific. So let's say you want to talk or teach a lesson on the love of God. Well, you and I know that the word love is one of the most broadly used words in culture today. You can love your spouse, your dog, a good cup of coffee, a sports game. You can apply the word love to everything from that which is significant to that which is really not significant at all. So if you then say to people, the lesson today is on either the love of God or our love for God. Well, if they usually use the word love in reference to their favorite candy, if it's kids, you're probably not going to do a really good job in driving home the profundity of the love of God. So, starting with the general, God loves you, you then would start to perhaps ask questions or engage in exercises that would ask questions like, now what does 
the love of God, so let's say God's love directed toward us, mean for your relationship with your school chums, for your relationship with your coworkers who drive you nuts, for your relationship with your spouse, depending on the group, kids, teenagers, adults. You're talking about God's love, but then you start to ask probing questions. What does this mean for? What are the implications of this for you? So you'll notice this even when I preach, that I, mean, I don't know if I've ever quantified it, but there's, there's, when, when, I, when I think about applying the text, it's probably almost 50-50 that I will make application for you. And so that's like maybe 50% of the time. And the other 50% of the time, I actually don't make application. I just ask you a question. And if you ask the right question, it just gets people thinking about it. So how is your love relationship with God? And you can then stack question upon question. How does God's love for you affect your prayer life? Does God's love for you affect your prayer life? Are you truly a worshiper? Or let's say you're talking about marriage. When was the last time you actually told your spouse you loved them? Have you demonstrated love through forgiveness? See, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just asking a lot of questions. And when you stack those questions... It helps people to move from this general, yeah, I know God loves me and I'm supposed to love God. Oh, all of a sudden, I didn't think about this for my personal relationships. See? And now we get to love some junior highs that are hanging down the hall. The uh, fifth general principle for teaching truth concepts is make people reach a little higher than they're used to. Put the cookies a shelf or two above the learner. Do not dumb people down. Now, this doesn't mean that the cookies necessarily need to be in the top shelf. It depends on your audience. But when you teach, if all you're doing is, you know, I don't want to be over their heads, I don't want to lose them, so you're just telling them everything they already know, this is going to bore people to death, especially if you're their regular teacher. If all you're ever saying is what they already know, it's going to bore them to death. That doesn't mean that you can't say it simply. That doesn't mean that you can't say it in the way they understand. But as we teach people, part, partly we're just reminding people of things they already know, partly we're stating the audience, but partly we're also challenging them, making them reach a little bit, like think a little bit, challenge their thinking, challenge their their, their ideas, challenge their attitudes, challenge their actions. Get them sort of mulling over what you've said. So if you're, let's say, a Sunday school teacher and the kids go home and they're still talking about it to their mom and dad, that means you've stirred something within them, a desire to discover, to inquire, to engage in what it is that you've talked about. Or if you're a life group leader, and you're making contact during the week or you're meeting every couple of weeks, the next time you meet people are still thinking about or reminiscing over what was taught last time. That means you, you challenge their thinking. So you just kind of look for, you don't have to get them every time, but just kind of look for these general signs that you've made them reach for it a little bit. Now the sixth truth is don't just moralize. This is a, a huge temptation with adults because we're used to this with kids. And that is, when, let's say we're teaching about Joseph and um, we see Joseph fleeing from temptation or you know, doing great things for God and we're like, okay, class or church or kids, here's the takeaway, be like Joseph. Well, there's truth to that, of course, but that's an anthropocentric message. It's man-centered. What about the God of Joseph? What about the God that Joseph encountered? What do you need to know about that God to even be like Joseph? If you don't unpack that for your students, you might as well, you know, you could be teaching in a mosque and say the same thing or teaching in a, a temple and say the same thing. If the Christian message is distinct and somehow we need to tie even our morals into the character of God or the encounter that we've had with God or the encounter that God has had with us. So what you want to do is you want to ask, this very simple question of whatever lesson you're teaching. And for those of you that are Sunday school teachers, I want you to especially be aware of this because this is the greatest temptation. Ask, 
Could a member of another religion teach this lesson? Could a member of another religion teach this lesson? If so, something is missing from yours. Something's missing from yours. So don't just moralize. Introduce people to the nature of God, the biblical view of who we are as human beings, sin, salvation. Tie in some of those other doctrines so that you're not just, okay, here's seven more commandments for you to try to put into practice this week. Good luck. But help them to encounter something about God or self that will help them to want to be like Joseph or be like Daniel. Okay? Any questions then about general uh, general principles for tr teaching truth concepts? Again, these are these are general, but I think they're important. Larry Richards uh, wrote a book. I think it's called Levels of Learning. Um, if not, these are the levels of learning that he suggests in his book, and I thought these these would be helpful just to go over. Uh, these relate. There's five of them. These relate to uh, how we actually learn. And um, I think sometimes as teachers, when we come into a classroom, we've already gone through a studying process, a preparation process, a thinking process, maybe some conversations with other teachers, trying to put things together. And we we've, we've sort of then come and we sort of unpack everything to our, our students and we fail to think about the fact that the reason why we're at this point is because we just traveled through five or 10 or 15 other points to get here. And we sometimes have too great of expectations of our, our students and we fail to see the process that we went through. So here are five things, they all start with R, um, that Richard suggests that will help us to understand uh, how people uh, learn. So the first one is rote. Now, rote is basically repetition without meaning. The teacher tells the facts, and the learner knows without meaning. So an example of this would be, God is love. God is love. God is love. Okay, God is love. That's all they hear. It's just rote. It's just three words. God is love. That's all they're hearing. After a while, though, the goal of the teacher is to move, and everything starts off by rote, in a sense. It's just, it's just words. There's no meaning attached to it yet. Now, meaning can come very quickly, or it may never come if you're a really bad teacher. But it starts with rote. Eventually, it moves to something that he calls recognition. So when the learner hears it, he or she says, I know this. The learner at this point is comprehending the meaning of the phrase or the lesson or the words or whatever it is that you're teaching. Okay, God, I know who that is. Love, I understand the meaning of love. So God is love. So it's gone from just hearing or being aware of to actually comprehending on a certain level. Now, what is the next level of learning? As the learner begins to digest information, at some point, the learner will be able to restate it. So it might be like me saying, okay, what are the first three points in Richard's levels of learning class? Number one. Number two. Number three. Okay, so you now have shown me that you've learned those by rote. But now, I may go around and say, okay, what does rote mean? Someone describes it. What does recognition mean? Someone describes it. What does restatement mean? Someone describes it. Well, that's actually the second point. I know I've got you to the third point when you can then say, well, here's what rote is. Um, and you begin to describe it sort of ad hoc or extemporaneously, or you, you can use other words to try to describe the, the definition of rote. You can maybe bring in examples. And that's when you, you can see like the learning is growing deeper, right? They're starting to comprehend on a deeper level. What's the fourth level? The fourth level is, he calls it relation. This is when the learner can say, I get it, I see how it fits my life. I get it, I see how it fits my life. Oh, the love of God. Now I understand why God is important. Now I understand why love is important. 
Now I understand why I have to put it into practice. But that doesn't mean they've put it into practice yet, does it? It just means they know they should. So the fifth stage then is what he calls the response stage. And that's when the, 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 the learner says, I'm changed because of it. Now the it is whatever it is you're teaching. God is love. Or um, you know we need to be forgiving people. Or uh, God has manifested himself to us in Trinity. So let's, let's do a couple of exercises then to try to put this into practice. And what I'll do is um, we'll just divide, let's just divide into four big groups. So this will be one group. Bruce, you're on this side. This will be just the first two tables, the second group. And then those of you in the back two tables just kind of split right down here between the carbs, between the two Frenchmen. You're on one side, you're on the other. Okay, so um, what I want you to do is I want you to select um, a biblical topic. Okay, you can use one of the ones we picked here tonight. Trinity, um, God is love, uh, mankind are sinners, Jesus is the Savior. Anything, anything like that. Just a simple statement that you could state in about a, a sentence or a phrase or less. And... What I want you to do is I want you to talk as a group. Now, the first one is kind of, it will take care of itself once you've determined what your subject is. So if this group says, okay, we're going to deal with the Trinity, then you're going to say, okay, what would a student need to be able to repeat to you to demonstrate that they've learned that by rote? Well, it would be simple. God is a Trinity, right? But the, it's the last four that I want you to be thinking about. What, what would your students need to say to demonstrate that they've recognized this or comprehended the meaning. Thirdly, what would they need to say to restate it in their own words in order to demonstrate restatement? Fourth, what would they need to say to demonstrate they've got the fourth phase, relation? And fifth, what would you want to see in them to demonstrate they've been changed by it? So don't, don't spend too much time on this. I'll give you about 10 minutes at the most. But this group, just pick a topic. You guys pick a topic, you pick a topic, you pick a topic. I don't even care if you end up at the end of the day picking all the same topic. And think to yourselves, if I was teaching a class, what would I want to hear in relationship to that topic from my students to demonstrate they've worked through all five of those levels of learning? Okay? Okay. So, uh, does everybody have this handout? Okay, I have one here for you then. All right. So, look at this handout. On the front, step number one, you're going to study the Word of God. And all the principles, if you've taken like the Bible study methods courses, you're going to put those into practice. If not, you're going to read the text, you're going to reread it, you're going to try to understand it in context, you're going to look things up in commentaries and do word studies. Best as you can, try to understand the text. The second thing you want to do is you want to organize your thoughts. And I personally think this is the most important part of the process. Organizing your thoughts, digesting the thoughts, sorting them out, categorizing them. Then you write your lesson. This part will be really quick and really easy if you've done step two properly. And then you teach it. That's the process. So, we're going to focus on this part, organizing your thoughts. And this, by the way, will work for lesson preparation and for sermon preparation. So what I've done is I've given you a planning worksheet. And we're going to practice this tonight using this passage. But before we do it, I'm going to show you another example after I explain it to you. So this is how this works. When you are studying a text... I recommend that you should be able to come to a point in the studying process where you can say it in a sentence. Now, this has been called by, depending on what the teacher is or preacher, the big idea, the kernel of teaching, the kernel of preaching, your propositional statement, whatever it is. Work hard at being able to state your lesson in one sentence. One pregnant, well-worded, sentence. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, 
uh, you're busy or people have said something or they asked you a question or something's gone wrong or you're distracted or whatever else. And I'm worshiping with you in the church. I'm okay, I got to preach. What am I preaching on again? <laughs> and what I, I, what I do to kind of refocus, I'll try to say it in a sentence in my own head. And then, okay, yeah, I'm on. Be able to say it in a sentence. This way, even if you're teaching and you're not feeling the greatest or whatever else, the worst thing that you'll do is you'll just get up there and repeat the same thing over and over again. But you'll still accomplish the goals you wanted to accomplish. But if you don't know what you want to say, how do you expect your hearers to know what you're trying to teach? There's an old statement in preaching that says, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So if you're not clear, your listeners aren't going to be clear. So say it in a sentence. So this is just a worksheet. Top of the sheet, you say it in a sentence. Write it out in a sentence. You can work it, rework it, rework it, but make sure you get it down into a sentence. Secondly, uh, you're going to obviously write your scripture or scriptures down because you may not. You may be doing a topical study. You may not be dealing with one passage. You may be doing with ten. But write them in. Give give it a lesson title. Um, it doesn't have to be fancy if the students don't know what it is. But if if you're promoting a lesson or something, you might want to put a fancier title on it. The one we're going to use tonight for our practice is just Living by the Spirit. And if it's in a series, just for um, uh, filing purposes, it's always good. Okay, this is one of six, one of ten, one of fifteen, one of two, if it's a series of lessons. Okay, the next thing, um, and by the way, the, you, I would really recommend you actually follow this outline, but after like 200th time of doing it, it'll just... It'll be in your head for the most part. But the, th the third thing you do, the fourth thing is write out some characteristics of your students. Who are they? So what we're going to do when we do this as a practice, we're going to have two groups that are writing something for elementary students, two for secondary and two for adult groups. So I'm giving you a little bit of a limit here. But even into those categories, what are some characteristics of an elementary student in Canada? What are some? Either ADD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Spoiled, materialistic. <laughs> what are some? What are some characters? Okay, energy. Okay. Oh, very innocent. Yeah. Innocent. Jen doesn't believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Okay. Uh, <laughs> just write some down. And, and what that does is it helps you as the communicator to, as you're, I mean, you're doing this right off the hop. So as you're working for your plan, you're planning it with that person in mind. So when I put a lesson together or a sermon together, I'm like visualizing, I'm thinking, not necessarily about individual people, but sometimes I am. But I'm trying to write it out of, my notions of who I'm speaking to. It's not just some article I'm going to publish online for all the world to see. This I'm speaking to a specific group. It's a it's a it's a time limited, audience limited form of communication. So write down some characteristics. Okay. For now, example, sorry, uh, for example, uh, you preaching all different backgrounds. How you can adapt what you adapt what you said to different new Christian Okay, this is a good point. So f you're right. Preaching in a North American church is about as diverse as it gets. So that, that's going to be a much more diverse mindset that I have than if you're teaching the youth class at Southwood Church or the grade four students or a college group or your life group. But there's still similarities. If nothing else, they all speak English. They speak a certain kind of English. They live in a city, and I have some knowledge of this city and what life is like in Windsor, Ontario. Um, then I, I, have a, I have general notions of the culture within which we live, the things that tend to distract us from faith, the, the key sort of standard temptations, the key struggles and hopes that people have, and that just flows out of my relationships with the congregation. So I can preach within that box and spray the whole congregation with, with bullets, so to speak. And some of them are going to hit. Maybe not every week, but there's still characteristics that characterize this church, this culture, this time. And if all else fails, 
I just preach to myself. And then I benefit. Okay, yeah. Good. That's a good point. Now, we sort of laugh, but in reality, like if you're 60 and you're teaching seven-year-olds, there's an age gap. But I still think even in that situation, you have to teach it first to yourself. You know what I mean by that? Like you have to let it sink in, affect you, and that's just going to put the soul into your lesson because it's going to flow from you, not just off a page. I mean, ideally, if we did all our lesson planning, we just walk up without any notes, but our minds aren't perfect, so we have notes and plans. But really, you want it to come from your soul. So you want the page to reflect your soul. Okay, good question. So three categories that I like to think in, and uh, I think I described this to the group at the back because they were dealing with the virgin birth. But for all of you, there's three things, three categories of goals I want to sort of think through as I'm preparing a lesson. What are the knowledge goals that I want to communicate? You can use other words there too. I mean, that also includes like wisdom, and which is more the application of knowledge, but content, doctrine, whatever you want to put in there. What are some attitudinal or emotional or sometimes they're called affective goals you want to meet? So the first, the first one, you could put it in the form of a question. What do, I, what do I want my students to think after I've finished teaching? What do I want them to feel? or what attitudes. And kinesthetic is just everything, anything practical or, or active. Okay, go feed the poor, or go apologize to your mom, or go read your Bible more, whatever it might be, right? It's just the practical, hands-on kind of stuff. And there's no problem with having 20 under each. You're probably not going to teach all those, but as you're writing your, as you're studying your text, what are the thinking goals you have, sort of the feeling attitudinal goals, and what are the practical goals? Then this category is not distinct from the other, but I think in, in Christian teaching, we should also always have it as a goal to like build into the doctrine of our church. So as we challenge people, I also want, and this is part of like putting the cookies up, up on the shelf, I, I kind of want people knowingly or unknowingly to go away thinking better about Christian doctrine. Uh, God, Christ, sin, salvation, not all of them every week, but I, I want them to be thinking about those things. And then other is just any other notes or goals that you have. So let me just give you an example of this. Again, this is not a lesson plan. This is just prepping for the lesson plan. So let's go to the next page. And if you want to open in your Bibles to um, uh, John 17, I just picked this text as an example. John 17. Now, I just tried to pick a fairly well-known passage of the Bible, and you probably have heard this one. This is where Jesus, it's subtitled Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, because this, um, this is where Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of believers, and he's essentially praying for unity among believers. So I just thought we'd use this as an example. So in John 17, and we'll just look at 20 to 26, there's more to it than this, I'll just read it for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, uh, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be, become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known the love with which you have loved me uh, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So obviously you're studying the passage. So you're looking at key connectives. You're looking at positive statements and negative statements. Uh, you're looking at repeated words like love, 
Uh, words like so that tip you off to purpose. You're studying the text. You're trying to understand the text. You're taking notes or maybe outlining things. And once you've done that job, then you sit back and you think, okay, um, what is, how could I capture, you're not going to capture every nuance, but how could I capture the essence of that passage in one pregnant sentence? So just one we'll try would be that the students would see the benefit in and commit themselves to unity in the church. Okay? Now, I can't preach or teach every aspect of the passage. I could teach this at a different point, and I'm focusing on the relationship of God to the Father in prayer, so it becomes a different sentence. But I'm just choosing this one as our one-sentence outline. So this is going to then guide and shape my eventual lesson plan. But for now, I want the students to benefit in and commit themselves. So to personally enjoy and to participate in unity in the church. So the title of my lesson is Unity in the Church. And let's just say for the sake of conversation, it's one of a seven-part series. It's not, but I'm just throwing that in there as an example. So I've just thought, okay, what's, what's the... Um, characteristics of the students here tonight. So there, I, I figured it would all be adults that show up. Okay, I'm right. Most have Christian backgrounds. Yep, even if you're first generation. Uh, there's diversity of ages. Yep. And there's everywhere from basic to advanced Bible knowledge. Yes. So I'm just kind of limiting. I could say a lot more, but I'm just limiting it down to some basic characteristics that are True. All of you know something about the Bible. There's some diversity of age. You've got some Christianity under your belt, and you're adults. So, under knowledge goals, and and again, these aren't these are just sort of um, partially intuitive, just observations I'm seeing in the text. There's no real magic to this, no right or wrong necessarily, but some some things that I've selected. Uh, in terms of things I want my students to know, God wants all of his disciples to be unified. Okay, so I want them to know that. Uh, Jesus prays for us. I want you to know that. Christ is in us. I want you to know that. Unity lets the world know the love of the Father. I want you to know that. That's going to spill over, obviously, into an effective aim shortly, or a kinesthetic aim. But... Unity lets the world know the love of the Father. Christ was sent by the Father to be glorified. I want you to know that. So just some, some samplings for you, okay? Now, then I'm thinking, okay, what are some attitudinal things or some emotional things that this text seems to aid in helping us with? Well, love for other believers. Forgiveness for other believers. It's easy to love if everybody always treats you well, but we don't always treat each other well, and that's why love is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. What are some kinesthetic goals? I want people to actively pray for unity in the church. I want people to speak to each other out of a spirit of love and grace. I want people to praise God for being glorious and extending love to us. So notice the verbs, pray, speak, praise. Some doctrinal goals. I want this lesson to inform our doctrine of what a church is and how it functions. I want to get insight into Christ's relationship with the Father. Insight into Christ's work as an intermediary for us. Just some doctrinal stuff feeds into our Christology, our, our ecclesiology, that kind of thing. So very simple. So I would work that, rework that, kind of fine-tune that, add to that, and determine, is this really what I want to uh, teach to the students? If these are my goals, then the next step, we'll cover next week, is putting together an actual lesson plan. But do you see how this kind of is working? So here's what I want you to do in our uh, remaining 20... I'm going to give you about 15 minutes to work on this, and then we'll have a very brief period of time. We may not be able to hear from everybody. Uh, let me see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, Six groups of five people. doesn't have to be where you're seated. But what we're going to do, this is your lesson title. This is the text. This is the text that you're going to be studying. Now, to understand this text, you have to read this one because this is where a lot of your practical, kinesthetic, and effective 
stuff is going to come out of. So this whole body, but focus in on this. I need six groups, five in each. So um, I need 10 people to put up their hands who want to do a lesson plan for elementary age students. And you can fine tune it down in your group, but 10 people I need to volunteer to put together a lesson worksheet. For, okay, so one, two, just keep your hand up, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I need one more, 10. Okay, so the out of those 10, uh, 10 um, we'll put one group here and one group here, somewhere in this area. Okay, now, 10 for secondary. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I need three more, eight, nine, 10. Okay, so uh, you guys can go kind of in this back area. And the rest of you, by default, are putting together plans for adults. So two groups. So two groups for elementary, five and five. Two for secondary, two for adults. We'll put you guys at the back, two adult groups. And you have, you have 15, maybe 20 minutes to use the sheet that I've given you, this sheet, and work on filling in as much of this as you can with one of these audiences in mind. Okay? Okay, class, if I could just have your attention. Um, our time is up, but I've written all of your names down in the groups you're in, including what category of student you're working on. So what I'm going to ask you to do is um, when we come back together next week, we'll, we'll do some talking about how to put a lesson plan together. Then bring the notes you have. So bring what you have. I'm going to put you back in the same groups, and now you're going to take your worksheet and learn to transfer it into an actual lesson plan. But you can save yourself some time, too, by this week thinking about your age group. Um, okay, joy. How, what, how would the concept of joy help a person to walk by the Holy Spirit who's in high school? So what are some things that rob the average high schooler's joy? What are some things about joy that the, uh, the average high schooler might not know? Like, do they know there's a difference between joy and happiness? Because the world says, hey, if you want to be happy, this is what you need to do to be a happy high school student. Well, there's actually something different about joy. How can they manifest joy to other people? So you can sort of be thinking about your demographic and how some of these qualities will help them to walk or keep in step with the Spirit. But that's kind of going to be what we're going to be uh, working on uh, next week. And uh, I think it would just be helpful to continue the groups in order to do that, okay? So don't let your group down and bag off class, as we used to say. <laughs>